A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode in Great American Jewish Cities, Borough Park, Part 1. This episode has been generously sponsored by the Colander, Mandelbaum, and Meyer Mayer families in memory of their mother, Saima Mandelbaum. And as we go into Borough Park, I want to make a, a disclaimer that just, uh, I mean, I think I made disclaimers like this in other cities, but it's uh, pretty essential to make it here and uh, just to, to, to prevent uh, some of the responses. I'm not going to be covering everything. Borough Park is obviously too much to cover, so we'll be leaving a lot out. Don't get insulted if your favorite personality or institution isn't there. And obviously, I don't do anything contemporary, so don't uh, don't be surprised that there's not much from the last 30, 40 years. A little bit, we're going to try, but not much. Um, we will be having a part two, because Borough Park, there's no way to squeeze into one part. So we will be doing a part two shortly, and we'll be posting it either tomorrow or the next day. Uh, please be in touch with me about sponsorship. As soon as the sponsorship is in, then I'll be able to know when part two is going up. So, in general, you can be in touch with me about sponsorships for other episodes, for future episodes, and, um, and in general, or lectures, virtual tours over Sukkot. You're missing coming to Israel for Sukkot. You can be in touch with me about doing a virtual tour. Uh, walking tour will that'll be fun also, or about this coming winter. So be in touch with me about all those things. Um, so um, we're going to get to... Another another announcement is that this is going to be the last uh, city episode of Great American Jewish Cities. This is number 18. We've gone through 18 cities, can you imagine? And many of them had part twos. So we had about 25 or 30 episodes in this fantastic uh, series. Um, and um, we this is we're going to continue again next spring. We're, we'll be covering more cities next spring and part twos or threes of previous cities that we've done. Sponsorships will obviously be available for that. Also, I want to give um, the listeners, you, a big uh, thank you for a successful series and to the sponsors uh, who made it possible, made it happen. Anyone who sponsored this city, be able to talk about the history, is an incredible amount of feedback. We had more listens and more feedback 
generated by this series of Great American Jewish Cities than by anything else that we've ever done at Jewish History Soundbites. So thank you all, and we'll be going uh, next year for another installment uh, in that. Also, keep your eyes out for a very impressive article in the Mishpacha magazine, one of the coming weeks, the next week or the week after, um, with some very original research done by my Mishpacha magazine colleague, Davi Safir. It's actually his article, not mine this time. And um, and it's about the Slabatki Yeshiva in Hebron and its interesting connections to the United States Jewish community. So that should be interesting as well. Now we get into Bar Park. I want to give a bit of an introduction and an overview of of what we're going to be uh, seeing here in uh, you know um, different time periods. The community, the neighborhood develops uh, over time. I'll tell you, I. I was once upon a time when there were trips to Eastern Europe, so it was actually one of the last trips I did before the universe turned over, was with a a shul, a very impressive and prominent shul in Borough Park, uh, the Avi Ezri shul. We went to Eastern Europe. We were there for the Siyam Hashas. It was a, an amazing trip, a fun trip. And I got to know this, uh, this shul, a great group of guys, one of the best trips I ever did. And uh, we we were going around Eastern Europe and to Kivrit Tzadik and all kinds of places, and I'm trying to get a feel for these people. So they're from Borough Park, so they're all Hungarian, obviously. And it's a very great group, and, you know, they all have this Heimish kind of Hasidic background, but they're not exactly Hasidim. They all seem to know each other and know other people in Borough Park, almost like an out-of-town place. You know, they're friendly and social and... Uh, so what it does give a sense of community. So, you know, you get curious, what is Borough Park all about? Is it all Hasidim? Is it, is it all a rough and cold city neighborhood that no one knows each other? On the other hand, it is the center of the Jewish universe. It is the center of the world. Um, so we have to figure out what, uh, what the place is all about and how it developed and how it became what it became today and how... That one shul that I went with is just one of literally hundreds, maybe thousands of shtibels and shuls across the neighborhood. Um, so all these sub-little communities in, within the, the great neighborhood. So the neighborhood today is obviously very different uh, from how it developed. Uh, when I was recently in the United States this past, uh, this past year, doesn't seem recent anymore, but I was there in December on Hanukkah, and, you know, we were there for only six days, and we had a family simcha, but we you know, made a few few places that we have to visit um, and, you know, ex- expose my Israeli kids to, to show them what America is all about. And they did not bring them to Manhattan. We didn't have a chance, but I did bring them to Borough Park. That was the top of the list. I can't have my kids for their first trip to America without seeing Borough Park, and took them on a tour. I told them about the neighborhood, and in a way, it reminded me of my tours and trips to Warsaw and the stories that I tell there. Just there in Borough Park, there's live people. And it's Hungarians, not Poles, Polish. So so there is that difference. But it is is a historic neighborhood that I had the privilege of touring recently. There's an old country Yassi song. Um, you know, everything about country Yassi is Borough Park and heavy, heavy Borough Park. I mean, all of his songs and Kivi and Tuki, which I grew up with and everyone else did. So he has a song on one of the albums, um, some spin-off of, of some popular song, which is most of his stuff. And he and he off the BQE, there's a place called Borough Park, 
where you can never park on 13th Avenue. It's a great song. It's very funny. A lot of humor there. I remember we sometimes called the neighborhood Double Park. And let's try to to figure out again uh, how it developed. Uh, as this was going to recording, so a listener named uh, Naftali Kasurla, he tells me that he met, he met, he met someone who did not look like what we would call a typical Borough Parker today. So he asked him where he's from, and he said, I'm from Borough Park. So he, I guess he must have shown surprise and maybe expressed it. So he said, uh, how'd you end up in Borough Park? So he said, my ancestors were the first Jews to arrive, and, and my family was the last Goyim to leave. So that's, uh, that also shows how the, the neighborhood has changed. So we go, the first period of the neighborhood's history goes uh, from the original Jewish settlement right up till the Second World War. At that time, it's an upper-middle-class neighborhood. It's out of town, um, secular. I'm talking about the Jewish, Jewish part of the neighborhood. There's obviously many non-Jews there as well. Um, secular uh, up to modern Orthodox. Um, and it is considered upscale. It's far away from Manhattan, far away from even Williamsburg, and uh, relatively in those days. And it's somewhat even farmland there's small farms there there's very a lot of parks trees it's like a real uh nice place uh, my grandmother uh who's a real new york uh you know straight out of a woody allen script in a good way uh grandma new york grandmother so she grew up in she was born and grew up in borough park in the 1920s about 100 years ago and um, and she would describe it, her, the home she grew up in. And again, upper middle class. Her father was in real estate, and they they were, you know, she was a third generation American. Her father was second generation. He had moved away from the Lower East Side to be in this in this out of town area. And in fact, uh, when we when she was close to ninety, we brought her to to live in Israel in her last years near us. And and as a like a goodbye to America because she never returned afterwards, she uh, took a drive in Borough Park of her youth, and she would describe it afterwards to us in Israel, and she would say, you know, boy, it looks so so different than anything I grew up with. The neighborhood's completely changed, I guess, from the eighty years before that she last time she was there in the nineteen thirties or whatever nineteen forties. A completely different uh, atmosphere and the urban development and the big buildings and the crowded and the traffic and the parking and everything very different than the suburban uh, feel that it had in the 1920s. So one of the first um, shuls that get built at that time is Shomre Emuna. Shomre Emuna becomes a, the mother of Jewish institutions in Borough Park. It's founded in 1907. They already have their own building by 1910. And this is pretty much one of the first, if not the first, uh, Orthodox shul in the neighborhood. Shul members were involved in the founding of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva Day School, which was the first uh, Yeshiva Day School. We'll get to that also in, in the neighborhood in, in Brooklyn. and uh, Not in Brooklyn, because Williamsburg, but in, in that area. And they're also involved in the building of Maimonides Hospital, which I'm going to get to. It was considered a major stop. This shul, Shomri Amuna, was considered a major stop for new immigrants and visiting scholars. Among the many speakers uh, in at the shul in the interwar period. It was Rebbe Chana Wasserman, Rav Kook, and Rav Baruch Ber Leibovich. They all spoke there on their visits to the United States. Uh, the, the rabbi of the shul in the, for, for about seven, eight years in the 1920s and 30s was 
the uh, very famous Rabbi Wolf Gold, um, who was the head of the Mizrahi, a prominent rabbi in the United States and later in, this, in Israel. And later on, it was Rabbi Dr. Harry Wolberg for oh, about 40 years. He was one of the first Orthodox rabbis in the United States to receive a life contract from his congregation. So he was definitely a beloved rabbi. And, uh, and the, the shul becomes a centerpiece of the neighborhood. In 1918, again, this is right at the end of World War I, it's the early stage of the neighborhood, they start a chevra shas. And it, again, it's on the model of the, um, the towns in Europe, first way earlier in the shtetl, but even in the big cities like Warsaw and Krakow and Lublin, the shtiblach had, the ones that were prominent enough to support it and to be interested in it, had a chevra shas, people who would study Shas and part of as the membership of the shul, uh, and, you know, and and they they were they were copying that, and they had that in their shul early on. Nineteen thirty-five, they opened both a chevra mishnayis and a gemach, a free loan uh, to help uh, needy members, recent immigrants, and uh, Shomer Muna became known as a place of Torah study. Had various shiurim throughout the day. It was one of the only shuls that was open Shabbos afternoon that people would come and study. Um, and uh, but interestingly enough. I, I I heard from a, a very close source of this great story. Uh, two German Jewish refugees arrive in the late 1930s. They're able to get their assets out of of uh, Germany, fleeing Hitler, fleeing the Nazis, and they settle down in Borough Park. And um, these German Jewish refugees come from these Hersheyan uh, Austrit uh, separate communities uh, in Orthodox, uh, strictly Orthodox communities in Germany. And here they're arriving in the late 1930s in a place like Park, where Shomri Amun is the most orthodox shul, but it's American orthodoxy at the time, which was, you know, not uh, not not overly orthodox, uh, to say the least, even in a place like Shomri Amun. So as it happens, it was one of their first Yom Kippers in the United States. It was either the late 30s or early 40s, and these two German-Jewish refugees, they decide to make a pact between the two of them they had substantial means, like I said, that they're going to buy, again, it's coming up Yom Kippur, so you could think about this and smile when they sell all the aliyahs on Yom Kippur in your local shul, and uh, they decided they're going to buy all of the Yom Kippur aliyahs, the entire thing, which cost quite a bit of money, and and they're going to only dis- they're going to distribute them only to people who they see wearing slippers, not wearing leather shoes, which was not that many people in this big, huge shul. Most of the people came with regular shuls on Yom Kippur, even though it was a real Orthodox shul. But that was America at the time. And they were very disturbed by that. They were not used to it. They're, the only people who are going to get aliyahs on Yom Kippur are the people wearing uh, non-leather shoe, sh- shoes. Um, Temple Bethel was another, even earlier possibly, a shul, uh, Orthodox shul. It's called Temple, but it was an Orthodox uh, synagogue. It was founded in 1902. They built a big brick building in 1906, which they outgrew, so they moved again. They built a bigger uh, current building in 1923. And the older building they eventually was used by Hevra Anshe Lubavitch. And it's the oldest shul building in Borough Park. There's actually a recent controversy about the building and what's going to happen to it. It's, is it a historic landmark? Is it not a historic landmark? But um, that was the original building. In the 1980s, Temple Bethel merges with the Young Israel of Borough Park, which is also a historic shul. The two of them come together. And bo- both of these shuls and many of the other early shuls were more famous for their chazanim, for the cantors that they hired from Europe over the years than, than any rabbis or other personalities in the shul. 
uh, you know, and uh, and Temple Bethel specifically uh, had and still has, uh, you know, famous chazanim. That's one of the features, distinguishing features of the shul, um, which I'll get to. I'm going to get to some of the chazanim of the shul. Uh, but they had a famous rabbi uh, there for a long time, a uh, very incredibly long career, Rabbi Dr. Israel Shore. He was from Galicia, and he had a close student of Rameir Arik, who he had smicha from. He also studied in Hungarian yeshivas. And he moves to Borough Park in the 1920s. He becomes a rabbi of Temple Bethel in 1938 and remains the rabbi there for 62 years until the year 2000, until his passing. An amazingly long and impressive career. Um, and on his 50th anniversary as rabbi, they made a whole dinner in his honor at the shul and, and all these different institutions in Borough Park that he was involved with and helping either establish or support or, or develop over the years. They, you know, they all honored him and it was a whole, whole amazing career. He had a doctorate from Columbia. He's also a Rebbe in RJJ. He was a Rebbe in the, in the Shlomo Kluger Yeshiva and other places. He was a leader in the Mizrahi and he was the head of the Vadhar Abonim of Borough Park. He was involved in all the local institutions, which I'm going to try to get to if we have time, the Torah Semis. Uh, yeshiva, the Shalamis uh, Girls School, the Eitz Chaim Day School, the Maimonides Hospital, and others. And the most famous chazan of Temple Bethel was uh, undoubtedly Moshe Kosovitsky, one of the greatest chazanim of all time. Um, and he is the official cantor chazan in Temple Bethel from 1952 to 1966, about 14 years. In fact, he's buried in Haram Anuchis in Yerushalayim. And I, when I do the Haram Anuchis tours, either live or virtual, we sometimes uh, go over to his cover just to talk about his place in Jewish history. He actually lived in Great Neck out in Long Island, but he would come for Shabbos and for the holidays to be the chazan in the, especially, you know, Yom Neroim, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, in, uh, in Temple Bethel. In fact, I heard from a someone who was a um, member of Mir Minyan, which I'm for sure going to get to uh, in a few minutes, hopefully, uh, so he said that all the Mir Minyan guys, especially the younger generation, they would sneak over for the Reish Chaydesh benching and on Shabbos Mavarchim to, to go hear Moshe Kosovitsky in Temple Bethel because uh, the davening in Mir Minyan exa- wasn't exactly, you know, as, as, uh, as uh, uh, you know, uh, um, exciting as Moshe Kosovitsky's, to say the least. Moshe Kosovitsky was first a chazan in the Vilna Great Synagogue. He later was a chazan in the Warsaw Great Synagogue, uh, the base Knesset HaGadol in, War- in Warsaw on Tolomachki Street, which was famously blown up by Jürgen Stroop, the SS officer who quelled the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So he, he's in Vilna, he's in Warsaw, and I know that many out there think that the prestigious cities of Chazanis in the interwar period were in Budapest or in Bratislava or Preshburg or Vienna, but we know that it was really in Vilna and Warsaw and the Great uh, cities of Eastern Europe, and 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 here Moshe Kosovitsky is Vilna, Warsaw, and then Borough Park. So I think that you see how he keeps on moving up in his career until he reaches the epitome where you can't go any higher, and that's where he remains for the rest of his career. Um, he was he escaped the beginning of the war to Russia. He goes back to Warsaw. I discussed his return to Warsaw in another episode, a very touching and powerful video of him making a uh, kelmole at a ceremony for. Uh, Warsaw Jews, uh, Jewry, who had been uh, wiped out during the war. His brother, David, David Kosovetsky, was actually a family of Chazanim. His brother, David, was 
also survived the war, and he is the chazan at the conservative temple Emmanuel in Borough Park. It was a conservative temple Emmanuel for many years, a block away, in, a block away from where he was in Temple Bethel. And so they're both in Borough Park, and one an Orthodox shul, one in a conservative shul. And like I said, it had the Temple Bethel had emerged with Young Israel. Young Israel, the Young Israel had as its rabbi at one period of time, Rabbi Gedalia Schwartz, who was a famous Pesach, and uh, he was a, a rabbi there for a time before this merger. Like I mentioned, this Temple Emmanuel was a conservative temple. It was built in 1908, an amazingly impressive building. If you see pictures, the building no longer exists. And, uh, and uh, he also, besides for the pillars and the, the, the architecture, but they also had these amazing, huge, artistic, glass-stained windows, which was in a very elaborate Holocaust memorial. And as the neighborhood changed, it was taken over by Babov, I believe uh, Bubba 45, if not, then someone can correct me. But either way, we can say in certainty that it was the more conservative Bubba that took over uh, Temple Emmanuel. Uh, another early um, uh, shul at the time was Anshe Sfard, who was known as the Sfardish shul, and it was not from the Sfardic Jewry, it was Hasidim. It was a Hasidic group, and many of the early Hasidic shuls were called um, the Sfardish Shuls or Anshe Sfar, that was, there was, you know, it didn't have too many shtibels of specific dynasties in the early years. Uh, you had a group of Hasidim who got together, who wanted to, to, to daven in the Nusach Sfar, in the, the, the style that they had been accustomed to in Eastern Europe that the Hasidic groups had used. So they would call it Anshe Sfar. And in fact, the Chazan there for a period of time was Yassel Rosenblatt. So you have all the great Chazanim originally in Borough Park. Um, and uh, he it was actually the it doesn't stand good for their history of Anshe Sfard, but it was actually their inability to pay Yassel Rosenblatt during the depression years, they defaulted on their payments to him and his salary wasn't coming and that was one of the factors which led him to bankruptcy among other factors, he wasn't exactly a master of his finances and it, it caused him to have to go to travel to pay off his debts and that probably led to his early death his untimely death. Um, another early shul was the Bnei Yehuda, which is a very prominent shul till today. Uh, the rabbi there for many years was Reb Lazer Kurzner. Reb Lazer Kurzner, who I heard much about uh, uh, from his grandson, who was my rebbe in the Mir Yeshiva, Reb Yosef Elephant, who grew up in Borough Park, another uh, legendary Borough Park personality. But he used to tell me, Reb Elephant used to tell me about his grandfather, Reb Lazer Kurzner, who was a student of Rabbi Itzelaponovizer, who had a kibbutz, a group of elite genius uh, um, of the Lithuanian yeshiva world uh, before World War One. Uh, during World War One, it collapsed; it fell apart, and uh, and later Rablazer Kurzner made it to South Africa. Um, and he was a very old school type of a rabbinical litvak. He was the rabbi there for a long time, and his next door neighbors was the Mir Minyan, which I'll get to and. They had a rough relationship with the, he didn't, you know, he was a very formal old school Litvak and these young yeshiva guys in the 1950s, they had, uh, they didn't have an easy time getting along. But, um, what Rabbi Elephant did relate to me was that Rabbi Lazer Kurzner used to stop any yeshiva boy that he saw on the street and ask him what he was learning. And then he would start fahering him. He would start testing him and speaking to him and discussing the whatever Talmudic topic they happened to be studying at the yeshiva. He was a genius. He knew all of Shas. He knew an incredible amount, all at his fingertips. And walking in the streets of Borough Park, he would 
speak to anyone who he saw in learning. And he said, and he said that it was actually scary walking the streets of Borough Park in those days because on one block, Rabbi Yaakov Yafin, the son of the Navardic Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Ram Yafin, who was also a legendary Talmudic genius, would be walking the streets doing similar things. And the yeshiva kids were stuck. You might bump into Rabbi Yaakov Yafin on one block and he would go ahead and fahar you. And then you would bl- bump into a blazer Kersner on the next block and he would fahar you and you would be going away just, just to be able to go get your Mendelssohn's pizza. You might have to go through two fahars. And that was uh, a rough experience. I want to read to you uh, excerpts from an article written by another legendary Borough Park resident, Dr. Joseph Kamenetsky, who, and of course we'll have to speak about it in another framework at another time. He was the uh, head of Toro Masora, but he was a Borough Park native as well. Um, and in 1953, he wrote this article in, um, in, in, in what eventually became Jewish Action. It wasn't Jewish Action then. And I'm, I'm going to just read it off. I'm quoting from his article directly. Um, perhaps in no other community, in, again, 1953, perhaps in no other community in America, and I'm a traveling man, have I seen all of the major Orthodox synagogues getting together on a common project. The joint Friday night forum, sponsored by the four major synagogues, Shomer Amuna, the Sephardish Shul, Young Israel, and Temple Bethel, parentheses, a temple only by virtue of its gala physical appearance. It is 100% Orthodox, close parentheses, are a tribute to the spirit of cooperation which permeates our borough park. The study of Torah is not limited to our Torah institutions. However, our synagogues are not merely houses of worship. They are veritable houses of study. The Young Israel of Borough Park is one of the few synagogues in the country which sponsors the Dafyomi, the daily study of a blot Gemara instituted by the late Lublina Rav. Most of the Jewish inhabitants of Borough Park have been in this country for many years. A large proportion of them were born here. All of the synagogues feature sermons or classes in English. The Jewish institutions sponsor ball games, picnics, and card games. The fine, ultra-modern dress shops, beauty parlors, and haberdasheries on 13th Avenue do a thriving business. Borough Park is indeed a, as a fine a representation of an American Jewish community as you can find on these shores. End quote. I think that's just fantastic. Um, the first Hasidic shtibel is set out, established already pre-war, 1930s. Um, the Chernobyl Hasidic shtibel is established there by the Chernobyl Rebbe who was running away from the communists, gets out of Ukraine, Kiev, and um, his son, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, uh, excuse me, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael uh, Tversky, um, is, 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 becomes the Chernobyl Rebbe for many, many years. And he, um, he, the atmosphere of the Chernobyl Stiebel was as if you're still back in Chernobyl. Um, he was legendary for his Hachnas Asarach, from welcoming new immigrants, for people, anyone who needed the chesed that he would do. Um, I recently heard a story from his granddaughter who told me uh, that that the, the you know the house was on top of the Stiebel. The Chernobyl Rebbe lived, Yaakov Yisrael lived on top of the the, the, the Stiebel or in the back of the shtibel, whatever, it was in the same building, and they had, uh, and everything was open. You came into the shtibel, you could sleep there, you could eat there, whatever it was. And they had all their food for Rosh Hashanah there, and during the Rosh Hashanah davening, someone came and stole all the food, their roasts and their meats and their chickens and kugels and everything. And they went to look for it, and they found that it was, you know, a destitute uh, Jew who had taken it, and, and, you know, he was hungry. His family was hungry, they took it away. And the Chernobyl Rebbe said, 
let him have it. He obviously needs it. If he's that desperate that he's stealing food from the Chernobyl Rebbe on Rosh Hashanah, then he obviously needs it. And he, she said, this granddaughter who told me this story, she said, uh, we ate tuna sandwiches at Rosh Hashanah. The Chernobyl Rebbe ate tuna. That was the chesed of the Chernobyl Rebbe in Borough Park, and that's what defined it. I recently had the privilege of interviewing this granddaughter together with her elderly mother, the daughter of the, she's in her 90s, may she live and be well, she, and the uh, daughter of the Chernobyl Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael, Tours, Yaakov, Yaakov Yisrael. Sorry, I keep on getting that mixed up. And he was actually the last Chernobyl Rebbe, because when he passed away in 1983, his son did not become Rebbe. Why? Because he wanted his son to have a Torah education in America, which he couldn't be, you know, rely on what he had been used to and back in Ukraine and Chernobyl and absorbing the atmosphere of the Chernobyl court. It was different. Chernobyl was the first shtibel to be established in Borough Park. It was surrounded by a modern Orthodox neighbor. There wasn't that many prestigious yeshivas. So he sends his son to Tells. And uh, you want to guarantee that a Hasidic dynasty is dead in its tracks, send your kid to Tells. And his kid, his son did not become the next Chernobyl Rebbe. One of the famous shuls uh, in that early period was the Shemri Shabbos shul. Later, the famous uh, Shemri Shabbos Stiebel Minion Factory, whatever you want to call it. It started about 1918, uh, again, very early on. And it was the attempt was to make a genuine, authentic Shemri Shabbos shul in the neighborhood that all the members would be strictly Shemri Shabbos, not just an Orthodox shul where many did not observe Shabbos. And eventually it evolves into the most famous Minion Factory on Earth with perhaps uh, maybe Zichr and Maisha and Yerushalayim being the only serious uh, rival. And like I brought an excerpt before, I want to bring another excerpt. Again, quote directly from these nostalgic uh, memorial articles by people who had grown up in Borough Park. I think it really gives over the flavor. This excerpt is from another article by Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb. Um, and he's writing about his experience growing up in Borough Park. And I'm going to quote now. My maternal grandfather, Mordechai Max Hartman, and his buddies felt that this was terribly wrong. Shomer Shabbos meant Shomer Shabbos, no matter what the sacrifice. He used to tell us about people he knew who had, got, who had to get a new job every week in order not to work on Shabbos. Max felt that they should have gone into business for themselves, which is what he did. He worked for a leather company and then opened his own leather business. Max and his friends decided to form a shul, which they called Congregation Shomer Shabbos. In order to become a member, you had to be 100% Shomer Shabbos. I remember when I was six or seven years old sitting with my grandfather while he and the shul board members discussed how to ascertain if a member was truly from. Did the individual keep his store closed on Shabbos? Where did he buy his meat? They would have debates. Should we let this person in? His store is closed on Shabbos, but he carries his packages to shul. Uh, he descri- end of quote. He describes later uh, the, the, his grandmother was the mikvah lady, and uh, the Barra Park had one mikvah, and that was that was one of the only mikvahs in Brooklyn. Again, outside of you know like places like Williamsburg, um, is again the 1920s and 30s, and uh, women would come from all over Brooklyn to use it. One of the the prominent early educational institutions was the Eitz Chaim School. Eitz Chaim School is one of the first day schools. It was the first yeshiva in Barra Park, and it was formerly called the Hebrew Institute of Barra Park. It was founded in 1916. Very, very early on for, a, um, you know, outside the enclaves of the Lower East Side and maybe Williamsburg at that time. Here it's way out. Um, excuse me. And it lasted until the 1970s. Late 1970s, it closed down. Um, and it was, uh, it, was, it, was, it was built actually on the site of the Borough Park Country Club from the early 1900s. That's where they built this yeshiva building. Um, so 
going to move to the next phase um, from the post-war through the 1970s. Uh, that's that's the next stage, next period of history. Again, these historical divisions are very superficial, and I made them up myself. Um, it's just get, it helped me organize this uh, episode, so don't take offense uh, if you don't like the way I divided up the uh, the time periods here. What is the characteristics of the post-war till the 1970s? It's refugees. It's a lot of Holocaust survivors. It's a lot of more um, yeshivish, uh, you know, yeshiva, Lithuanian-style yeshivas and, and great rabbis. Um, the, um, some of the first Hasidic rabbis are starting to settle down there. There's a lot of building of the Borough Park infrastructure that, that some, some of which became a feature of the neighborhood till, till today. Uh, one of them, which I mentioned earlier, was Mir Minyan. You have a fascinating place, to, which uh, which um, uh, was started by a group of of students of the Mir Yeshiva who were in Shanghai, and when they're in Shanghai together, they survive with the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai, and then their families are back in Eastern Europe. They're all wiped out by the Nazis, and these people, their new family becomes the Mir. They become like brothers. It's 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 a, incredibly. Besides for. You know, we describe the great Torah study and how many great Rosh Yeshiva came out of there. But in many ways, it was a social fraternity. These people became the best of friends. And the overwhelming majority of them, when they settled down to build families, and most of them stayed in the New York area, they went and got jobs. And they, many of them settled in Borough Park. They got jobs. They were working in the city. And they wanted to stay together. And they couldn't daven anywhere else. They, they started off by Rav Ram Yafin at Navardic, and he basically threw them out because... He couldn't handle their, uh, their uh, I can't think of a nicer way to say it, their chattering. And they started their own minion. They started off in a, in a, in a, a kindergarten. It was called Happy Town. And they rented this kindergarten, which was obviously closed on Shabbos, and they made their minion there. And eventually they were able to buy their own building in 16th Avenue and 54th Street and built a little brick building where there was the mere minion. It was, like a, it was literally like a family. And, one of and my wife's grandfather, Sumchanad Borni, was one of the founding members. Him and a couple of his friends, Rabbi Meishalei Lavavitz, uh, Rabbi Rucham of Lavavitz's son, he they founded and a group of others. They founded the Mir Minion and it had a tremendous amount, probably close to a hundred. I don't know the exact number. I don't know if anyone knows the exact number of Alta Mirrors of Mir Mir students from Shanghai, um, who and, until they all passed on and their children moved out of the neighborhood, it was a vibrant. Uh, Shul in the 1960s, 70s, even 80s. And um, it was, you know, I definitely, and that was the main stop of the tour when I brought my children. I walked in, I bring my little girls into this, this shul, and it's mid-afternoon, and it's full of chassidim learning there. And here I am, I walk in with two little girls, and, and I start taking pictures and showing them things and, uh, and all kinds of stuff. And one of them just approaches me and says, what in the world are you doing here? Who are you? And I said to him, what are you doing here? Your grandfather was from Hungary. My grandfather fi- founded this place. This is, this is my place. So this is, uh, that's, that's Mir Minyan, and that's also the change of the neighborhood. And um, there was very famous personalities, Rabaran Kreiser and, and uh, many others. Uh, um, you know, I probably should devote an episode just to Mir Minyan and places like that. But one of the things that... Um, that it was known for was the, 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 the torture that they used to put the bar mitzvah boys through. The bar mitzvah boys would have to prepare an entire pshetel, a whole uh, long 
piece piece of shtickel Torah to say over, and I had to say it in Yiddish in front of the whole shul, in front of all these old and grumpy altamirs who ripped into them, who asked them questions, who fired away at them, and 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 the, you know the the poor kid had to go through that experience. And uh, one time, one of the the children of the mir minion decided he's his bar mitzvah. He's going to make sure it's okay. And so he, what he did is that he, before he went up and said it, a few days before, he made a meeting with Herbaran Kreiser, who was one of the lions of the Mir Yeshiva, and the closest that the Mir Minyan ever had to a rabbi. They never had a rabbi, but they, the closest they ever had. My wife's grandfather used to give a daily shear during the, uh, during the week. And all types of people used to give all kinds of stuff there, but there was never any rabbi of the shul. Herbaran Kreiser was one of the most prominent uh, members of the shul. And he, so this boy sat down and, and went through his bar mitzvah pshetel, his whole thing, his whole shtickle Torah. And Urban Kreiser improved it. He asked some questions. And, and at the end, he approved it. He said, it's okay. This is a good one. So now he has the approval of Urban Kreiser. And he gets up there and that job is to say his, his bar mitzvah pshetel. And his knees are shaking because he remembers what happened to all his friends. And he opens his mouth and they start yelling at him and asking questions. And all of a sudden, there's... A shout from the side from Ravarin Kreiser, Schweig, er zockt gut. Quiet. He's saying, very nice. He's saying good stuff. And that was the, so the strategy worked. But um, again, we'll have to get back to Mir Minion another time. Otherwise, I'm just going to spend the rest of the allotted time I have on the Mir Minion. Um, one of the most prominent in the history of Borough Park, prominent residents of the neighborhood who undoubtedly left his uh, impact was Urbaran Cutler. He settles down in in uh, in Borough Park, and he lives there. He never lived in Lakewood. In fact, Lakewood Minion, which still exists in Borough Park, is because of his influence. And his presence in the neighborhood, and the Yeshiva Minion, and the all-day learning, you, know, you walk into Lakewood Minion, and people, even till today, but for sure, historically, uh, the study of Torah, literally all day, the old farm, that old uh, musty smell of the old shuls that many Borough Park shuls have, um, you know, that in a certain sense uh, has the atmosphere of Rabarn Cutler uh, till today. There was the Navardic Yeshiva, which I mentioned, or Bavram Yafen, who um, um, sometimes the Navardic boys, like I said, they would sometimes eat or even sleep at Chernobyl. But Rabram Yafen, the son-in-law of the altar Navardic, who was able to escape from the war, he tries to establish and reopen the Navardic Yeshiva in in. Um, in uh, in in Bara Park, and later his son Rabbi Yaakov Yafin was there. There was many many other yeshivas as well. Many yeshivas later on, some Lithuanian style yeshivas, some Hasidic yeshivas, some in between. We are not going to profile all of these many yeshivas because there's simply uh, not enough uh, time. It would be endless. Uh, one of the most prominent uh, educational institutions at that time in Bara Park was the Tyrus Emes Kamenitz. an elementary school, later high school. Rabbi Elias Schwartz was the principal for over fifty years. He was the rabbi of the young Israel in Benzenhurst, and he was active in Torah Masori. He would actually write for their youth magazine, Olamenu. Rabbi Simcha Zissel Levavitz, another son of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was the, very famous for uh, writing down and publishing his father's Shmuzin and all the Sfarim and everything that we have from Rabbi Rucham Levavitz comes through his son, Rabbi Simcha Zissel. So, you know, people imagine him as this, you know, he was, he was it. He was the one who wrote down everything from his father and published his father's sfarim. And he was a, a, a mechanic. He was an educator. He was involved in the development of the high school at Tyrus Emes Kamenitz. And he was a, a rebbe there. He was a very simple person. And he, um, and he, 
and eventually the school, the Taurus Emes Kamenet School, moved to Flatbush. Um, one of the most important uh, and famous institutions in Bar Park history is the Shalamis Girls School. Um, it's really from the pre-war. It starts. That really belongs in. It starts. The story starts in the previous period. It starts in 1930, and my guess is is that it's the first Orthodox day school for girls in the United States. It's before any Beis Yaakovs are established. Talking about very early on, very. It's only a few years after Beis Yaakov was founded in Europe. So this is really a historic institution. In 1941, they hire Dr. Judith Lieberman to be the principal of the school. She's the wife of Saul Lieberman, Professor, Rabbi Professor Saul Lieberman of the seminary, and she's the daughter of Mayor Barilan. So she's uh, a very prominent individual. Uh, the school is a Zionist orientation with an emphasis on high level of studies and Tanakh and other subjects. It also eventually moves to Flatbush and Long Island. And the story that I have with Shalamis, a funny story, again, with my wife's grandfather who founded Mir Minyan, so he uh, worked at the Lower East Side. He had a store, and he was taking his lunch break in a local restaurant. And uh, and he and he uh, at the time he is, he wasn't sure where to send his oldest daughter to school to send her to Beis Yaakov, which was then still in Williamsburg. It was in the early fifties. The Beis Yaakov in Borough Park only opened in nineteen fifty-eight. Rebbezin Vichna Kaplan, or to send local to Shalamis, um, and the. Uh, so he didn't know what to do. So he's eating in this restaurant. It was a few days after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, our time of season. And he overhears from another table two people speaking. And one of them is saying, where did you daven uh, Rosh Hashanah? And he says, oh, I, I prayed at Temple Emmanuel in the conservative temple. And let me tell you something. In Temple Emmanuel, we don't talk during davening like at the Orthodox shuls. The Orthodox shuls, they talk during davening. There's no decorum. And he's, my grandfather told me, my grandfather told me that he's, you know, by nature a shy person, but he's a yeshiva man, and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't handle that they were de- degrading the orthodox shuls, so he interrupted them from his table. And he says, I happened to overhear what you were saying, and I want to explain to you why we at orthodox shuls talk during davening. He said, because we feel at home in our shul. And he said, in the conservative temple, maybe you don't feel at home. You feel so uncomfortable that you don't want to talk. But we feel very at home. And, uh, you know, and, and he says, and by the way, you obviously live in Borough Park if you went to Temple Emanuel. Where do you send your kids to school? So he said, oh, I send my children to Shalamis. So he said, okay, thank you. And he went home and he told his wife, my grandmother, he said, we're sending our daughter to Beis Yaakov. And that's what made his decision. And because of that story, I always make sure to... Uh, to try to talk in shul, so to show that it's orthodox and not conservative. I'm just joking. Um, Vichna Kaplan, like I mentioned, she opens the original Beis Yaakov in, uh, in, uh, in Williamsburg, but in 1958 she builds the Beis Yaakov branch in, in, uh, in, in um, Borough Park. We're going to touch more on Vichna Kaplan and her being the legendary builder of Beis Yaakov. We're going to touch on the, we have another series going about girls' education, which I hope you're following as well, and we're going to speak about that uh, more in depth at another time. Um, so almost all the Beis Yaakovs can trace their roots to uh, Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan's Beis Yaakov branch, and a lot of important teachers there, and Schava Pincus, and, and uh, Raburi Hellman, and other Altamir, and uh, many others were involved uh, as well. We're going to 
is the end part one at this point. And I remind you, part two is coming soon, as soon as the sponsorship falls into place. So be in touch with me about that. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, and of course, uh, subscribe to our podcast um, on your favorite podcast platform or on Podbean, J Soundbites at Podbean, and follow us on Twitter at J Soundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.